Hey y'all, welcome to class. This is White Homework, a podcast about race, racism, and restorative justice. I am Tori Williams Douglas. I'm a writer, speaker, and an anti-racism educator. And today I am uh, joined by a fave BFF of the pod, (laughs) Andre Henry. Yay. Oh my gosh. I haven't talked to you in like eight weeks or something. No, we talked. Never mind. We talked. When was the last? We talked. I think the last time we talked was on white homework when was the when was that though that was a it's been a few weeks it's been yeah march i think it was march oh okay yeah might have been march yeah i'd have to look that up who knows how are you i'm doing okay you know hanging in there yeah um half vaccinated so hell yeah looking forward to I mean, not necessarily looking forward to, but, you know, looking forward to the after, the being post-vaccinated. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I can do more things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so great. Um, do you want to tell people, before we, like, get started, yeah. uh, do you want to tell people about um, your, the Buy Back Black Debt Yeah, sure. Did I get that right? It is hard to say. (laughs) Okay. So, um, I love it though. Like, everybody should be on board if you're listening to this. Yeah, I mean, here's your right homework. I'm super excited about this. Buy back black debt. (laughs) I'm super excited about this campaign that was started by activist Sonia Renee Taylor. It's called Buy Back Black Debt. I said it like without a without yes. a hitch right there. I usually never that First usually time. never happens. Okay, so so this brilliant activist Sonia Renee Taylor started this campaign to basically um, pay off black educational debt. Um, yeah. And what happens is basically a white person starts a campaign for you know a black person that they know, um, and helps to organize this thing to where. People can call in directly to the student loan people mm-hmm. uh, and make payments on Black people's debt. Now, this is a this is a take on reparations. Um, it also reminds me of Didi Delgado's work because I remember Didi did a did a webinar for Hope and Hard Pills last June, the Juneteenth, and when she talked about reparations, she said, "Put put a Black person on your credit." You know, so like yeah. basically this is a part yep. of a movement uh, that I want to, again, reiterate black women being at the helm of this, you know, imagining ways that we can chip away at the uh, racial wealth gap ourselves, which is super exciting for me as a, you know, uh, as a nonviolent strategist and, you know, someone mm-hmm. who believes in direct action. The thing that is most yeah. exciting to me is that you know, these politicians have been dangling reparations in front of our face, including student loan forgiveness. And uh, we could actually do this ourselves. So um, information about my Buy Black Back, ah, Buy Back Black Debt campaign. I almost said it well that time. Um, my Buy Back Black Debt campaign um, is mostly on my Instagram. So if you follow me on Instagram or anywhere on social media, really, um, Instagram and Twitter, and we post about it regularly. There's a link um, it's a Google form that you can follow and the money does not go to me. You do not send me a cash app or a PayPal or anything like that. Right. You call yep. Navient, <laughs> the people who mm-hmm. have this educational debt on my back. You just call Navient directly and you make a payment on my behalf. And then uh, yeah. I post a little thingy saying thank you. <clears throat> yeah. 
no, it's awesome. It's super easy. I did it. I chipped in. Thank so, you. um, it's very, yeah, the form is super easy to fill out. I honestly, I was like, I have a little bit of phone anxiety, so I didn't call Navient. I mm. just D de- or yeah, I DM'd the person who's organizing this for mm-hmm. you, the white, oh. the white ally who's, yeah. uh, and I was like, Janet. Hey, I'm just gonna, I'm yes, Janet. And I'm like, I'm just going to Venmo you and you can just, yeah. you know, forward it. Um, so that's what I like. That's what I wrote down in in the um, little Google form, and then I just sent you know Venmo her, yeah. and it was so easy, super easy, yeah, and super exciting. So I mean, I hope that you know when my we have so there's over ten thousand dollars has come in for my awesome. campaign. Um, I had about ninety thousand, you know, there. So I mean, mm-hmm. it is a big chunk, mm-hmm. and. Um, one of the one of the great things about it right now is because of COVID, a lot of these loans are kind of frozen in a way, so you're not really required yeah. to make payments on it. So that means that the yeah, principal is not a moving yeah. target right now, because usually yes. it is a moving target. Right yeah. now, the target is steady. Wow. <laughs> so, right. you know, right. the more people that that we get on it in in the near future is the closer that possibility of paying it off is. So I hope to pay this forward when it's done. Like I want to help. Mm-hmm. someone you know um do this when i'm done so yeah yeah it's exciting that's so great yeah we should do we should do we should like coordinate and do like a little yeah because i'm i'm ra- i'm rallying all all the white troops <laughs> for juneteenth <laughs> oh um so this is like yeah this is gonna be like this is gonna be my thing because my birthday is three days before juneteenth mm-hmm. um and uh so i you know i kind of try well you know i try to use my birthday to like raise yeah. funds for a black family yeah. um <clears throat> and so yeah i'm just like I'm like well you know june comes every, every year. year white folks who <laughs> who have disposable income and want to show up in a meaningful way like this is basically the easiest thing you can do and i've really gotten on to this thing of like i'm very kind of anti-nonprofit right now mm. no that makes sense <laughs> i'm sure i'll get o- i'm sure i'll get over it at some point but it's just like that it is one of the many industrial give- complexes we have <laughs> yes right if you give a thousand dollars to a nonprofit versus if you give a thousand dollars to a black single mom mm-hmm. right if you give a thousand dollars to andre henry's student loan debt yeah what makes what makes a bigger impact in in the community? I'll tell you one thing: that thousand dollars you give to that NGO is going to pass through a bunch of different expenses that the NGO has before mm-hmm. it gets to the people that they're impacting. If it ever gets to the mm-hmm. people that they claim that they're impacting, you know, not that I want to yeah. say that the whole thing yeah. is, you know, is uh, gosh, why? This is what happens. I try to I try to not say bullshit, but I can't think of another word. So <laughs> I was gonna say a scam. Yeah, exactly. But, you know. Not not to say that the whole thing is a scam. <laughs> no, I understand that like there are good people, you know, doing doing some good work, but I also think that white people use nonprofits as a way to mm-hmm. um uh to hang on to their bigotry against black people and um, hang on to this idea that we are bad with money. Yeah. Um, and to just prove that like, again, like we are not, we are inherently untrustworthy um, with money and we're going to spend it on the wrong things per, per white America. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And so they're like, well, I'm going to give my money to this organization that's doing stuff 
for black people, <clears throat> but it's mostly run by white people. Well, yeah, and this and, this is a brand recognition thing, right? We we have the they give to the NGO because they recognize the brand and it, they trust it, you know. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, that's kind of the extent of of what we know. Like then then you peel back the layer on some of these places and you find out like. You know, and it's not always nefarious, right? Like sometimes it's right. just really like the nonprofit world, which I've worked in my entire adult life <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and worked mm-hmm. in several organizations. Many of them are struggling to preserve the institution itself. And so, I mean, they mean well and the people who give to them mean well. Right. Um, Absolutely. But the money sometimes just doesn't make it to the folks that they're supposed to be serving. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Um, so yeah, that's that's just kind of where I've been landing on that recently. So I'm glad that we got to talk about that a little Have bit. you read that book, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded? Not yet. It's on my okay. list. It's all about it's this. It's on my library list. list. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you told me about that, actually. Oh, but, I tell yeah, a lot seen, of people seen, about that book. I've seen other people tweeting about it, too, yeah. recently. So I was like, I need to maybe bump that up a little bit, yeah. a little bit higher on my list. Um mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about like where this is, this is like what I want you to tell us, explain to us Uh as best you can. Mm -hmm. Um, Like what is in terms of your morality, your ethics, like what are kind of like the foundational structures? Like what lenses are you using to view the time and place where we are, right? Where we are trying to keep as many black people, as many native people, as many undocumented people, as many Asian people alive as possible. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. Um, like what is like, what is the foundation of your morality when it comes to, to this work, when it comes to um, like nonviolent struggle? Mm-hmm. What's the moral basis? Yeah. What's like the moral imperative the moral for you imperative around nonviolent specifically or, or any of it? Maybe I've misrepresented, you know, your view, your perspective. Like I'm, I'm, I'm always learning and changing. My view is definitely that of nonviolent struggle for sure. Um, my, my, uh, what would you say? My, my strategy that I that I uh, appeal to, or the political, yeah, to to address like issues of racial oppression is political agitation. I believe in political agitation. And I believe in I believe in political agitation through nonviolent struggle. I don't so I sh- okay. I'm not going to say that. That's too strong of a word to say. I don't subscribe. Let me back up just a step. <clears throat> okay. Because this is something that a lot of people don't realize about nonviolence. Right. There are many different mm-hmm. types of nonviolence. Yep. Right? And the one that is most familiar to people is some version of. Dr. King slash Gandhi's nonviolence, right? Mm-hmm. I say some version because most people have not read Gandhi or Dr. King. So yeah, it's something that exactly. it's something they think that they know about because they've heard, you know. They've heard about yeah, it. Yeah. They've they've heard a section of Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, which we'll call that we'll call it that for now, since that's how people sure. know it. Um, but just so yes. y'all know that's the end of the speech. <laughs> you should listen to the rest of it. Yeah. Okay, so that's one. And some people call that principled nonviolence, right? And that okay. is exactly what it sounds like. It's on principle, <laughs> we're committed to nonviolence. And that's where you get like Dr. King, one of Dr. King's early speeches, where he says 
<laughs> every time I think of it, I try to imagine myself being in the sanctuary that day when he says it and me starting to look around like, wait a minute, did everybody just hear what he just said? Because he yeah. says he said something in that particular speech. Um, and I can't remember the name of it, but if you, but if those of you who are listening, if you read Dr. King's book, Strength to Love, it's one of, it's full of Dr. King's earlier speeches and writings. He says, we will meet their capacity for violence with our capacity to suffer. Um, <laughs> um, and when he talks about, yeah, yeah, that's why I, that's every time heavy. I think about it, I, I, I imagine myself in the sanctuary looking around like, wait, there's a lot of clapping in here, but <laughs> did y'all really just think What's about what he on? said? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so Dr. King, when he talks about this version of nonviolence, which he was very much inspired by Gandhi to uh, formulate, conceptualize, mm. he, um, he talks a lot about making the oppressor a part of a beloved community on the other side of nonviolence, right? Mm. On the other side of the nonviolent struggle that yeah. he will make a friend of his enemy, right? That's one version of nonviolence. I'm not going to get that detailed into the other ones, but uh, to contrast that, wait, let me let me just before I contrast it, let me summarize that though. Like that is like nonviolence as a moral position, right? It's yes. it's a no yes. matter what, nonviolence Absolutely. is always superior to violence, right? Mm-hmm. For the most part, mm-hmm. I mean that's that's how it's interpreted. But even as I say it, and I'm actually going to write about this for my exclusive patrons soon. I'm going to start writing for my exclusive patrons. Um, Hell yeah. <laughs> um, even, even so, King was very much inspired by Gandhi. And Gandhi even says, if the choices are between inaction and violence, violence is the better choice. <laughs> right. God. So, wow. So, and, cool. and that's Gandhi <laughs> saying that. Right? That's Gandhi. So, yeah. Yeah. So just, just as I say that, you know, just we mm-hmm. want to keep this in mind because these things get whitewashed and, Yes. Re- reduced and distorted and all that kind of stuff. Okay. But anyway, that's one position. That's actually not my position. Okay. I agree with Gandhi on the latter point. <laughs> yes. But that's not one. But that's not one of Gandhi's main points, right? You got to remember that King is in, in King is inspired by Gandhi, and Gandhi is a Jain, right? Or mm-hmm. or sorry, he's not a Jain, but Jainism really did Jainism, influence yeah. Gandhi's philosophy okay. of nonviolence, and so that's where not. Uh, I almost said Nandi. No, that's one of my best friends. We're talking about Gandhi, not Nandi. Nandi. <laughs> um, love you, Nandi. Love you. Okay. Um, <laughs> Gandhi uh, is, that's where Gandhi's principle of ahimsa, which means, you know, do no harm basically comes from. Okay. okay. All right. I, that's not my position. <laughs> okay. My position is usually what people call strategic nonviolence. Um, as, a, as, a, as a caveat, these labels are not as rigid and reductive as they sound. Principled nonviolence is also strategic, but people call this conception of nonviolence strategic. And that's the one that I appeal to. This is more of Mandela's nonviolence. <clears throat> Nelson Mandela, if you read his uh, his autobiography, I think it's called A Long Walk to Freedom. It's been a long time since I read it. I'm pretty sure it's A Long Walk to Freedom. He talks about in the early apartheid protests, or civil resistance campaigns, they adopted nonviolence, also inspired by Gandhi. But the reason why they, but King King adopted nonviolence from Gandhi because it was a way that was not only effective but also was consistent with his Christian beliefs. He could mm-hmm. he could confront his oppressor without causing his oppressor harm. 
But Mandela said, we we adopted nonviolence in the African National Congress because it worked. (laughs) It was a superior strategy or it seemed to be a superior strategy. And that's why we adopted it. That's also Mm -hmm. why they abandoned it later on in apartheid because they adopted it because it seemed like it worked and then it seemed like it wasn't working. So they said, all right, we're going to try. We're going to found a radical group within the African National Congress, Unkanto Sisiwe, uh, tip of the spear, and we're going to pick up arms, right? That's how they ended up doing that. That's more my, that's where more where I um, live. And in that genealogy of nonviolent struggle, there are others like Gene Sharp, who wrote the, you know, he did so much writing about this. But, you know, he also, one of the blessings that we've gotten from Gene Sharp is not just the system systematization, <laughs> Sound, I worked it out. A system systematization <laughs> of nonviolent struggle. Um, you know, he chronicles nonviolence from like 400 BCE up to his present day. Um, yeah. But also gave us a list of 198 methods of nonviolent actions. Right. Mm-hmm. Also in that genealogy comes Serge Popovich, who's one of my mentors, led a successful nonviolent struggle in Serbia, top of the dictatorship of Slobodan Milosevic, and others yeah. along that line. So that's where I'll stop with kind of like the overview of different nonviolences. There are others, but mm-hmm. to answer the question and, and on brand for me, I did it in a very detailed and thorough and long-winded way, but is um, is that I identify with political agitation through strategic nonviolence. I love that. <laughs> and so that's where, so the, this is like where, this is kind of like what you bring to your work, right? Like this yeah. is kind of the lens through which you view organization. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and, and whatever, 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 whatever resistance looks like. Um, because again, like we all have, we all have different strengths. Mm-hmm. We all have different skill sets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I love what you said about, um, Nelson Mandela and like we're using nonviolence because it's an effective tool and when that tool stops working we may have to use something else right, right? right. Um, and I, I I mean I think that that I think that that's really important and I, I very much resonate with the idea of you know ultimately like I don't care if if my neighbor is like me right. for those of you who don't know I, I live in Portland. There's a bunch of like proud boys and Patriot prayer and whatever. They live like right across the river wow. from us. So this is what I say when I say my neighbors, the people in my community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So I don't actually care if, if my neighbors like me, mm-hmm. right. I don't, I don't even care if my neighbors want me to exist. Yeah. Like that is kind of irrelevant to my personal morality, yeah. my personal ethic. Like I want to build a world where nobody has to worry about, being able to take their kid to the dentist. Yes. Yes. Right. Nobody has to worry about how they're going to get to work, how they're going to feed their family. Mm -hmm. I want, I want to create a world where even, even the white nationalists, like they don't have to stress about making it to the end of the Mm -hmm. month. Like that is, that is, that is the world that I want, want to build. Right. And, you know, we can definitely get into like the weeds about, whatever free speech and hate speech and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But ultimately like that doesn't, my, my focus is very material. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, It's very material and it's very kind of oriented around protecting people from harm, protecting people from trauma, even people who are causing harm and trauma intentionally. Right. Even the people who are 
every single day in Portland now, like driving through protests mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because that's the thing you can do. Yeah. Uh, and I would say that I, I, I share that conviction and I guess a part of the moral question is there are, there are things that if you allow them to be the way that we even do to harm doers, they still undermine the type of world that we claim that we want to build. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we say that we want to live in a democratic society. That means that we have to treat harm doers democratically. Right. Yep. Um, yeah. We can't, we can't be like, okay, we want to be, we want a democratic society, but we'll, we'll be fascist to the people who are, who cause harm. Right. Who oppose us. Yeah. Right? So um, mm-hmm. I think there is a part of that, you know, that principle of loving your neighbor. Right. I would say in spirit, that still is very much a part of my moral framework, if you want to call it that, right? Absolutely. Loving your neighbor. Now, where where that ends for me, though, is where that is used by oppressors to say, mm-hmm. well, you have to be nice to me because yes. you say that you appeal to this moral principle. My yes. moral principles are mine to keep. Not for you to police. <laughs> um, so um, I think that that does factor into, you know, my framework around okay, political ag- agitation, strategic nonviolence, and um, I have to keep asking myself, like, all right, let let me just get into a little bit of a of a controversy here. Um, yes, do it. Go on. <laughs> so there is there is controversy around whether or not nonviolence nonviolent struggle can liberate Black people, right? Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people who don't believe that, and I understand why they don't believe that because we do we do tend to believe that violence is the most powerful force on earth. Now I could write papers about why nonviolence is effective, but there are three facts that convinced me, right? Uh, from a massive study from Erica Chenoweth and Maria J. Stephan, which is in their book, Why Civil Resistance Works. They they um, studied 323 conflict situations uh, throughout the world. Um, <clears throat> both nonviolent and violent elements or armed elements, right? And what they found was that nonviolent struggles were uh, twice as likely to succeed as armed. They found that it only took three and a half percent of the population in sustained nonviolent action to topple dictatorships and totalitarian regimes and regimes that had way more firepower than the people resisting. And they found that those uh, those struggles that were won through nonviolence tended to yield more stable democracies in their wake. Uh, the ones that were won through armed struggles tended to descend into civil war within 10 years and the others, it would take much longer if that happened. That latter part is the part that I think really touches on my moral framework for nonviolent struggle. uh, If we want to talk morality at all, Um, because the thing that I've thought about, you know, armed struggle is I don't believe this statement when people say violence never accomplishes anything. I'm like, have you yeah. have you been to America? <laughs> you know, like right. this this is the nation revolutionary war. Yeah, this is mm-hmm. the nation violence hath wrought, right? So <laughs> um, uh-huh. um I don't believe that. But I do have to ask the question that if you if the way for you to become free from your enemies is to kill your enemies. Um, 
then who will you become? Who will you have to become in the process of that revolution, right? Yeah. Who and who will you be yeah. on the other side? Yeah. Now, yeah. I want to I want to quickly, you know, say I'm not talking about like the the woman who's been imprisoned by you know a a, a rapist, you know, and has mm-hmm. to kill him to to get free, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm not talking right. about that. <laughs> I'm right. talking about the I'm talking about people of color, indigenous people, black people who say mm-hmm. the only way that we'll be free from white supremacy is to kill white people. Yeah, uh, that's one way to go about it. Um, <laughs> but who will, who will you become mm-hmm. in the process, right? Yeah. And um, so, yeah, that's, you know, that's a part of my framework is that we, if we want to create a certain type of world, then the means by which we go about trying to accomplish it matters, right? And that is also a strength of nonviolent struggle that from what I've been studying over these years is that in the in the process of conducting a an effective nonviolent uh, con- struggle, the people, the participants have to practice certain skills that they will have that they will need on the other side to build the world that they want. Because when you're dealing with nonviolent struggle, you you do have democratic decision making processes that you have to make. You have to you have to exercise those skills in making decisions and 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 conducting plans and all that kind of stuff. So that's a part of it too. Okay, um, I kind of want to circle back just really quickly, maybe not quickly, uh, depending on how this conversation goes. I'll try. Um, you know, I loved what you said about people. Like people outside trying to police yeah. your your nonviolent response, mm-hmm. right? And and what that looks like, yeah. um, and kind of like <clears throat> in that same sort of vein, I've something I've been really struggling with, wrestling with for several months, you know, if not longer at this point, is what like what is the appropriate response when we have um, when all of our political leaders are essentially beholden to the wealthy and corporations and the people are being ignored. Right. And like, not every, like we have millions, tens of millions of people making essentially slave wages, Mm -hmm. you know, not enough to live Mm -hmm. on, but because, you know, if I can give you $8 an hour for 10 hours a week, I've created a job. Therefore I'm benefiting the economy. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I'm going to get some tax breaks. Like we, we have this whole structure in place and we have leaders again, like I, I use this example all the time. I just think it's really poignant. Ted Cruz, right. Yeah. He's, he's a Texas Senator. He doesn't pick up his phone. He does not respond to emails. Nobody in his office does anything that he doesn't want them to do or that they don't feel like doing mm-hmm. in terms of, of, of being responsive to the people that he ostensibly represents. Yeah. Right. And then when a couple of people show up at a restaurant and start screaming at him, that's like, that's a bridge too far. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Right. Like he, he's, he's yeah. insulated himself and he's used his power to completely insulate himself right. from, 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 you know, first of all, losing an election right. and from his constituents right. that he has, you know, a moral obligation to be representing, to be listening to, yeah. you know? And so, <clears throat> you know, I really, really struggle with like, you know, if, if we can't yell yeah. at the people yeah. who refuse to, who, serve us and refuse to engage with us. Right. 
what do we have? Right. Like what, what is an acceptable, what's an acceptable thing to do? And I, you know, this is a hypothetical question because I'm asking people, you know, I'm asking white folks right. hypothetically who want to have all of these civil conversations. Right. We need to sit down. We need to have a discussion. Yeah. This man will not have a discussion. Right. right. Period. Stop. The end. Right. So we have to move on to something else. Right. We have to move past civil discussion. Absolutely. Like, and have like a strategy, Absolutely. have a next step. Absolutely. Right. And it's not about like, I love on Twitter to joke about guillotines. I think it's funny as fuck. I'm not going to lie. But like, ultimately, that is very antithetical to right. who I am as a person and my personal morality. So I'm not talking about like, right. we just need to kill all of the rich people right. again. Because who are we on the other side exactly. of that? Like I'm reading about the French Revolution. It's just like, oh, fuck. Like once you go on this path, it's real messy yeah. to try to get back. Yeah. Right. Um, so. I would love your thoughts on this idea that we still have to be nice yeah. to people in power who ensure our suffering, who ignore us, who are supposed to represent us and like literally do not give a fuck about us. Yeah. Well, the first thing that needs to be said is that only the oppressed get to decide how they're going to respond to their oppression. That's the mm-hmm. first thing, right? This is not, yeah. a, this is not like, this is not a performance for bystanders. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh-huh. yeah. you know, no, we're not like asking you rate our resistance here. No, that's not, that's not like, I'm going to make that website though. <laughs> rate our resistance.com. That's the first thing that needs to be said. I think okay. the second thing that needs to be said is that, and this is a problem that, I mean, this goes all the way back to like Tolstoy, right? Mm-hmm. This misconception that um, nonviolence and inaction are the same thing. Yeah. And if you really listen to what pe- most people are talking about when they talk about nonviolence, you you if you listen closely enough, <clears throat> you'll easily observe that at the end of the day, what they're talking about is doing nothing. <laughs> uh huh. And this reminds yeah. me of like Maxine Waters a few years ago. You know, she was talking about the Trump administration. She said, "When you see these people." you know, going around, you know, who are uh, aiding, you know, their accomplices to Donald Trump's, you know, fascism. Mm -hmm. Get in their face, you know, make them uncomfortable. That's what she said. And then Chuck Schumer, you know, uh, gets on the floor of whatever that thing is, the building, I don't know. Um, (laughs) That place, that, that government place. And he has this very reasoned and, you know, yeah, very reasoned and tempered, you know, little speech that he does about saying like, yes, you should protest your rights and things like that, things like that. But be civil, be respectful, you know, and basically says, mm-hmm. basically completely undermines what Maxine Waters says. Right. Um, and when you think about what he's saying about like, yes, protest, but but don't upset anyone. Don't make mm-hmm. anyone uncomfortable, mm-hmm. you know. Right then you're not really left with any options. And so this is the thing. Even Dr. King ended Dr. King ended up having to make this argument several times where he says nonviolence is confrontational. It is confront yeah. it's confrontational. It's yeah. disruptive. It is offensive. It is divisive. It is polarizing. Right? Mm-hmm. It aims to cause a crisis. In his own words, he and Ralph Abernathy and all these other civil rights leaders gathered in uh Savannah, Georgia, in January of 1963, to plan the Birmingham campaign 
that they would launch in April during the uh, during Easter season. Uh, and he said that he wanted to create a situation that was so crisis packed that yes. all of these Jim Crow leaders would have to come to the table and negotiate. So I think, I think yeah. that that is a huge part of this conversation. Um, so then what is left, right, was a part of your question. Mm-hmm. And this gets to the heart of why we use nonviolent struggle, you know, and I, I, I shy away from just saying protest because protest is just one category of nonviolent direct action, which we right. can get into the yeah. others later if we want. Um, but this is why we do it is be, is precisely because the official channels are not working. Yes. And that's always been why, you know, people of color <laughs> and black people have been using nonviolent struggle to fight against white imperialism for centuries now is because those channels were never made for us to utilize, you know, for our benefit and for us to thrive. And so if, if they're not going to allow us to vote or they're going to keep passing laws to make voting harder, if they're not going to give us seats on, on the boards and in the government spaces, stuff like that I'm talking about, you know, under Jim Crow and all that kind of stuff, although some of that yeah, is to, yeah. coming back, you know, Jim Crow is yeah. having a moment right now. Um, so, it's um, a real pretty course. <laughs> um, that when the official channels are not working for us, then we take action ourselves to either provide those things that are not being given to us or to mm-hmm. compel those who hold power to meet our demands. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So yeah. Making, making people feel uncomfortable. Right. Which, which again, like we live in our society is just culturally so much the upside down, right. That making <clears throat> a powerful person feels uncomfortable is, now being called a form of violence, yeah, you know, right? People think that the word civil and civil disobedience means polite. And it, it doesn't. Right. It's, it, it does not. It's, it means civilian, you know, or, or, <laughs> or, or against, you know, or it's, or it is a, it is a, it is disobedience to, you know, civil society or, you know, that's where it lives. It doesn't mean polite, you know, and I think that was mm-hmm. the part that I missed in the question too, is like, this is, what's missing from people's understanding of this is that we, we say nonviolence all the time. We just say nonviolence, nonviolence, nonviolence. What Dr. King was not, what Dr. King was talking about was nonviolent direct action. We're forgetting the direct action part. And when you do direct action, Mm -hmm. even if you're nonviolent, even if you have a moral commitment not to cause physical harm to the people that you're, Mm -hmm. that you're confronting, you are going to upset them. (laughs) And it's not going to feel good to them. And it's not going to feel nice. But you have to do it anyway. And the reason you have mm-hmm. to do it anyway is because your back is against the wall. If you don't do something, I mean, your choice is either. Your choice is either to submit to the oppression um, or to mm-hmm. resist, right? Mm-hmm. And so, all right, nonviolent struggle gives us not just a way that we can resist without causing harm. But also it gives us a way to resist. It gives people who don't have the resources to resist by any other means uh, an option yeah. to resist as well. And I think that's the thing that's most compelling to me is that, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't yeah. I don't see us being able to, you know, build a revolutionary army that can take on the U.S. military. And but luckily, right. 
that's not the only option. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, um, last year, propaganda said basically something along the exact same lines of like, a lot of people are like, hey, well, why don't you know, why don't you just, why don't you just take up arms to defend yourself? It's like, you think we haven't tried that? Right, exactly. <laughs> there are a lot of white people in this country. Yeah. There are a lot of armed white people in this country. And I was like, yeah, exactly. Like, I think that when you are talking about, um, when you're talking about power mm-hmm. and the amounts of power that um, black people, people of color and, you know, associated accomplices uh, have, mm-hmm. we have much, you know, we have much more power engaging in strategic nonviolent struggle mm-hmm. than we do firepower. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, 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 you want to put your strengths against their weaknesses. You don't yeah. want to put your weakness against their strengths. And yeah. our weakness is that we don't have the resources <laughs> for mm-hmm. conventional warfare. Mm-hmm. And they do. Yeah. And and one of yes. those resources is a lot is centuries of practice refining the art of war, <laughs> you know, and armed combat, you know. And so like I I think I might have said this to you before though, but but like some people they're like there are two there are two stories that come to mind. One is one is, you know, someone saying to me, I feel like we've been trying nonviolent struggle for centuries, Black people. And I was like, mm-hmm. well, that's impossible, first off, because nonviolent struggle in the way that we see it right now didn't exist until, you know, really Gandhi's independence movement from Britain. Like, it it had not been systematized and used in that way, right? Um, so, that, so what have we been doing? I say, actually, we have been trying armed struggle for centuries. The, the mm-hmm. amount of slave rebellions or rebellions from enslaved people that happen in this country, so numerous, and we don't know about them because the history isn't taught to us. You know, yeah. um, we have been trying armed struggle, you know, and it hasn't been working, you know, or it hadn't been working. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that we still are, mm-hmm. you know, it right. hadn't been working. That's one, you know, um, shit, I forgot the other one. <laughs> I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> It's fine. It'll come back. I get it. I think that, yeah, I mean, since we're on the subject, France, if you're listening, you owe Haiti reparations mm-hmm. uh, to the tune of several hundred billion dollars. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you can write that so check. So tell Citibank to cough it up because we know that Citibank is having the money. <laughs> Citibank, listen, you don't like stuff burning down. <laughs> you don't love that. That's not, that's not, that doesn't spark joy for you. <laughs> Fix it. Um, I do really, I do sincerely wonder, you know, especially because in Portland, which we have our own very interesting dynamic, right, around around protest and, and the history of, of protest here. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's it's really funny because our our mayor is doing the exact same thing that I just described mm-hmm. Senator Cruz doing, right, where he just won't engage. Yeah, just I have my office. Um, you know, I'm not. He's, he's the police commissioner, but he won't tell the police to do anything different. Um, you know, he won't, he won't do any, like there's, there's nothing that he's willing to compromise on. Mm-hmm. Um, so much so that when somebody asked him, okay, if you had an unlimited budget for the city to meet the needs of the people who are in, who are in the city, what would, the, what would be your priorities? What would be your goals? What's something that you would like to see mm-hmm. fixed or changed? And he did not have an answer. Wow. Right? That is how little he cares. Wow. Is that he doesn't even, he doesn't even think about what could possibly be done differently. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and so when, you know, when we're 
when we're in this kind of space and people, you know, and again, like also along these lines, there are people who uh, pay all of their bills off of just taking cell phone video mm-hmm. of riots or whatever yeah. and deceptively editing them and then posting them up on their website. Mm. And then a bunch of conservatives give them money for proving quote unquote that like leftists were attacking mm-hmm. a conservative because of their political beliefs. Right. Yeah. Um, and then it gets usually these deceptive edits then get picked up by the media and they just like run with, run with that story. Um, so there's, <clears throat> there's so many layers here in, in, in my specific yeah neighborhood yeah. right uh, in my community um and I, I do think that it's really funny because I, I the thing that I don't understand is how people um people who benefit from the status quo or people who have power or people who are adjacent to power the thing that I do not understand about their perspective is if you give people literally no options no options you refuse to even engage with the conversation yeah you just check out you use your power to insulate you from any, any kind of discomfort even, right? Any kind of responsibility to the community that you literally, your job is to answer to us. Mm -hmm. So if, if you give people no options, what do you think is going to happen next? Right. Right. Right? Like what do realistically, like look at history, read a book, Mm -hmm. Uh, what, what is the next step here? What do you, what do you imagine is going to happen? Like, Oh, you just get over it. Right. I, I, like, I, I don't know. And I don't, you know, I haven't had been able to have a conversation with someone about this yet. Um, <laughs> you know, cause COVID and, and whatnot, but um, well, the thing if that, you're a conservative and you're listening and you're in Portland, I will buy you lunch. If you will talk to it me. It seems like people like, really do think that they're going to be able to first off, um, convince people that they will continue to depend on a system that is clearly not working for them and that they could shame people into not doing the thing that comes most naturally to them, which is to rebel. Mm. Like that, that is the (laughs) thing that comes most naturally, right? Like, that's so interesting. And it's what's really interesting is seeing like, you know, what governments all over the world seem to do. There are some exceptions, but the rule seems to be, that instead of just addressing the problems that cause social unrest and riots, they just invest in more policing (laughs) so that they can put down the riots that emerge from the fact that they are not taking care of all of their people, you know, or all of the people Uh that occupy the lands, you know, that, you know, Mm. their, their Mm -hmm. land. And I think that really that a lot of people just, a lot of people do believe in the system. They believe that the system works for everyone and they blame people's suffering on personal responsibility. There's something that you're not doing. (laughs) There's something that you're not doing that's keeping this from happening, you know, and if you just straightened up your, you know, just pull yourself up by the bootstraps, then, you know, you wouldn't have these problems. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I just, yeah, I I love, (laughs) yeah. Humans, I don't know. We have this thing where we just sort of like default to rebellion. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, which I find very humorous, like in the grand scheme of, of, of all of human history, right? Like the last 200,000 years, I find it really kind of hysterical, but 
if I and now I want to read more about this, but if I understand, um, my oh, sorry, let me just put it this way: my current understanding of history is that there was a time when to rebel was not common sense. True. Like the the notion that we could, as ordinary people, you know, confront, you know, the rulers and that that was like saying that you could declare war on the gods, right? Right. And it was the gods yeah. who set who set you know this hierarchy and this civilization. You know, is how most of those stories go. And so, like, you know, you're not going to be able to fight the divine, are you? <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, uh, th- thankfully, we don't live in that time anymore where it is common sense now that like we can rebel and, th- and that we can revolt and we can do it. We can even do it without weapons <laughs> you know? yeah. and we can win. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. yeah, that's so good. I appreciate you saying we can win. We can. Some days I'm like. Feels a little rough. Other days, I'm like, okay, we've 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 made a lot of progress. There's just still a really long way to go. Yes, so, we can, and saying. we have, and also we have to always remember that when we talk about progress, that there is, there is, we have an opponent, right? Mm-hmm. We have an opponent that fights against that progress, right? And so we're gonna keep yeah. on having to, we're gonna have, we're gonna keep on having battles. But it reminds me when you say that, it reminds me of. So I, I put Brian Stevenson on the spot one day a few years ago when I was oh. when I was interviewing him because I was okay. like because I was like Brian just give it to me straight man just I'm if you were in, it was like the equivalent of me like grabbing his collar like just give it to me straight man is there hope is there any hope. <laughs> I think about this a lot about how like it was so inappropriate for me to do that to him um, because like I mean I'm we're we're there so we can talk about his book and all that kind of stuff right and I'm like I I have this oh personal need for Brian Stevenson to just tell me man just tell me are we gonna make it Brian <laughs> and of course Brian Stevenson was very was very generous and and he said Andre there there is hope you know. And um, mm-hmm. I really do believe that. And the part of, and really the reason why I believe that is because, I mean, Tori, we just had no idea. We just were not, we just were not taught about the many, the many times that ordinary people were outgunned and outorganized mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they rose up, you know, and they mm-hmm. won. It has yeah. happened, you know, and so it's like, it may not be like a, like, I can't roll up into somebody's city like a snake oil salesman and be like, give them a guarantee that if they just apply these, mm-hmm. these nonviolent actions in sequence, then they'll be able to, right. you know, defund the police or whatever they want to do. Mm-hmm. But there is a chance, right? And no matter how small that chance may be, um, although it's like, you know, through nonviolent struggle. I mean, it's around, it's around 50, you know, like it's, it's not far from mm. 50, 50% chance, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, no matter how small that chance might be, we have to take it. Right. Yes. Cause, is, Absolutely. Because if we don't take it, then what are we, you know, we're going to sit around and tell people, shh, NASA won't like it if you 
Master not gonna like it if you talk talk like that, you know. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> and talk about what Master's gonna do to us, you know. Uh huh. Yeah. If we do anything, so. Man, I love that. Did we touch on what you wanted to touch on when we were talking about protests? Yeah. Good. Uh, yeah, we got it. I'm just kind of sitting here like, I'm just sitting in it right now. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's good. I think we did. I think we did good. Sweet. Thank you. Oh, no problem. You're amazing. It's my pleasure. Always. Very, very grateful for you. I'm grateful Every for day. you too. Oh, thanks. um yeah so you should remind people again where they can find your buyback black debt yeah follow me on social you know uh twitter it's andre henry or instagram the andre henry and you know i'll continue to post about that the reason i don't i don't have it like on a site other than it's on a google forms thing so that's why it's easier to do it that way you can grab the link there we do regular updates every Saturday morning right now. I'm going live and chatting with folks who have uh, given. So, Tori, you should pop in, you know, because yeah. honestly, it's been kind of like the white lady hour right now. And I love, you know, I love everyone who, you know, gave. But, yes, of course, but almost of every weekend so far, it's been somebody white. And there are some there are some really great things about that. Part of it is just like. You know, I, I have been cynical about having positive relationships with white people at all. In general, I've been mm-hmm. I've been cynical mm-hmm. about it, and there are many white people in my life that have kept me from just you know concluding that it's impossible. Yes. But this yeah. campaigns like this also they do bring you into relationship with people to keep on reaffirming and reminding me that like okay, mm-hmm. we don't have to write off everyone. Who is not black, you know? <clears throat> and also, yeah. you know, there. Yeah, I love that. Also, just like Angela Davis said, Davis said too. There's some black people that she don't want to be in. <laughs> what does she say? Because uh, what is it? Kin kinfolk? Skin not folk, all, right? not all skin folk right. or kinfolk she, or yeah. She was, oh, she said there's some black people I don't want to be in solidarity with. And I'm like, that's real. <laughs> that's yep. real. Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, just 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 to clarify, the money that I gave you for this cause was given to me by a white woman. Nice. She just doesn't know that I gave it to you. <laughs> so it's fine, right? It's all it's, it's all coming from the same white lady fine. pool. I'm getting a little worried though that people are gonna be like, Andre only talks to white people on Instagram Live. What's up with that? Oh no. Yeah. Oh dear. Oh dear. Yeah. Then you're yeah. Then you're then you're gonna get canceled. Oh, I think I've already been canceled. Oh, that's fair. <laughs> I yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure there's like um. Oh my gosh, like a like a shadow canceling thing going on for me right now too. So <laughs> we're in the same boat. Uh, shadow cancel campaign. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. I mean I know that this is an entirely <laughs> different topic, you know, and maybe your maybe your uh, patrons will enjoy. Uh, you know, candid conversation, you know, a little bit, but I've been thinking a lot, a lot. I mean, I I mean, obviously I have, I have learned that there are people out there who will straight up just lie about you. So I have learned. (laughs) So, I mean, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about cancel culture and honestly about grace, like the Christian, Mm -hmm. you know, not, I mean, it's not, it doesn't come from Christianity, but 
but that's my connection to it right and like grace and forgiveness restoration all that kind of stuff and I'm excited to read Adrian Marie Brown's new book because she's talking about this. We will not cancel us Um, because in movements, this is something that is really, this is partly why we don't have the power that we need to launch a successful nonviolent revolution is because we're too busy fighting with one another. See, I come from evangelicalism, so I I know purity culture when I see it and the left definitely has one, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I know that purity culture wasn't helpful in my religious experience, and it's definitely not been helpful in in the experience of pursuing liberation with others. And so yeah. I had a really encouraging conversation with uh, th- this guy. His name is Paul Angler. He wrote the book, This is an Uprising. He started yeah. the momentum community that incubated the Sunrise Movement and others that y'all have probably heard of. You know, like, so Paul and I were talking about this the last week, I think it was. And um, he was just like, Andre, it's it's really bad. Like the cancel culture thing is, you know, it's, it's becoming a huge distraction for us. And I hate, I hate, and nobody wants to talk about it because then you sound like you're a right winger. And so then that, that compounds the problem. Yeah. I mean, you know, part of the reason I I don't talk about it a ton isn't because I'm afraid I'm going to sound like, you know, like some right wing person. Uh, but it's mostly because I just feel like a lot of the time white folks don't need to know mm-hmm. like what's in our dirty laundry, yeah. right? Like they don't need to know what's, what's in our closets. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of, <clears throat> like a lot of conversations that are happening online should be happening in person. Right. Take that COVID. <laughs> <laughs> There are way too many, way too many conversations happening publicly. Uh, yeah, that need to be happening. Yeah, off, off the record yeah. in real life. Yeah, over you know food. Yeah. over a couple of hours lots of or call- a couple of days. Lots of calling out and shaming and all that kind of stuff. And I think that goes back. It's so much easier to do that when the person's not in front of you, right? Yeah. That's something else that the data says. Well, I think is it. I think that you're it- not as mean when the person is right in front of you. True. And I think that it's part of what we were talking about earlier, though, is like, this is connected to our vision of tomorrow, which is the first mm-hmm. thing that we have to have. Yeah. It's the first thing that we need if yeah. we're going to do any kind of protesting or or resistance. We have to have some kind of vision of what, what we want to build. We say that we want to live in a world without prisons and without policing. You know, mm-hmm. we want to live in a world where even people who have caused harm are still treated as human beings who have the capacity to be restored and to be rehabilitated and to have new lives where we get to the root causes of what makes people cause the kind of harm that they do and address those things. Right. And then as Mm -hmm. soon as somebody doesn't have perfect politics over here, you know, that maybe, maybe they have caused harm or whatever. I'm exaggerating when I say as soon, obviously. Of course. Yeah. I understand. But then it's just like, we, we show just how deeply formed we have been by this carceral, punitive, you know, world yes. that we live in, violent world that we yeah. live in. Yes. And we got to do something about that, you know, because yeah. we can't create that world with that logic. <laughs> you know? Right. Then, then yeah. we're just in the same Absolutely. situation that I was in church where I'm like, yeah, all the things that y'all say about like Are being great. a Christian, like these sound, this sounds amazing. I don't see anybody doing it around here, (laughs) you know? Right. So like we can continue to appeal to these values, but you know, 
I'm not going to keep like waking up early Sunday morning just for us to give lip service to these values. Like I'll go to brunch and mm-hmm. live my life, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. And I'm feeling a similar way sometimes about, you know, movement culture. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hear that. Sweet. Well, that just means that we'll have to have another conversation, yeah. I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So y'all go follow Andre. What's your, what's your Patreon? It Again? is. Open Heart Pills? I think it's Andre Henry. I'm pretty sure. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think okay. It's well, go, go find, go find Andre's Patreon. If you don't find the buyback black debt campaign. Um, and you should sign up for his podcast and email list and all of the good things. Thanks for telling me. Open Heart Pills. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and if you want to, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at my homework and my, and at Tory Glass. And I mostly just yell about racism, <laughs> I think. And how I am still bitter that I can't be completely naked on the internet. Um, oh. oh, I know. Everybody's like, sheds a little tear. <laughs> These are my problems. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. I, I think that's everything. Go to whitehomework.com and help us pay rent for people of color because reparations is cool all the cool kids are doing it (laughs) um okay sweet i think that's everything all right i guess uh yeah talk to you next time yeah all right bye white homework is a coba.fm production your host is tori williams douglas executive producers are jeff martin and nate frazier produced by jillian cohan martin Audio production and editing by Nash Probst. Music by Kay Solace. For additional resources on White Homework, please visit whitehomework.com. For more information on other COBA podcasts, please visit COBA.fm. That's C-O-B-A dot F-M. Thanks for listening.